Tenekoto, Nomai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hello everyone and welcome back to you all. As you can tell, I'm still recovering from my chest infection, but definitely on the mend. Enough about me, let's get into this episode. Supernatural beings are a part of all cultures worldwide. There are not many, if any, cultures in this world that don't have a version of this particular variety of interdimensional beings. They go by many names dependent on where in the world they are found. But there are not only one variety of these beings, there are many. Here are some names a few of them go by in different parts of the world. In Ireland and the British Isles, they are called the Fae, Fairies, Pixies, Leprechauns, the Seelie or Unseelie, the Banshee, also being a fairy type. In Hawaii, they are the Menehune. In the Greek culture, nymphs or satyrs. In Germany, they are elves. In the bayous of the Deep South, in the USA, they are called Fofile. So many different names all over the world for these fairy folk. In the native New Zealand, or Maori language, they have an overall name for supernatural beings. They call them Heiwi Atua. But we also have many different names for these fairy folk. Here are just two of them, Patuparehe and Turuhu. Many different regions of New Zealand and Iwi, or tribes, often have their own name for these folks. What do these elusive beings actually look like? Are they simply the stuff of myths and legends, or are they really a living, if elusive, species? The Patupaarehi, the fairy folk, is a topic that we've covered in other seasons of the Walking the Shadowlands podcast. In the very first season, I covered the New Zealand version of them, and this subject is one that always seems to hold a fascination for most of my listeners, certainly is a subject I never get sick of learning about. In this episode, I welcome back a much-loved and enjoyed guest from our first season and from one of the old Patipaarehe episodes. This episode's going to be a little bit different in that initially my guest will be reading from some very, very old, in some cases the first officially written descriptions given of these folk as handed down by the local iwi. Generally, I don't encourage guests to simply read stuff, but in this case, I feel it's relevant for two reasons. One, so there is an audio recording of this old record, and two, because it's very relevant to the history of these beings in New Zealand. And later in our conversation, my guest will also share eyewitness accounts of experiences with these beings as shared with him and his own personal encounters with these beings. 
So, are you willing to begin our journey into this part of the Shadowlands and see what awaits us there? Then let's begin. Sometimes there are people who touch our lives in ways they may not even know about. Today's guest is one such person. I first heard about this gentleman way, way back in the 80s, in the late 80s here in New Zealand, and his words had a profound influence on the way I began to look at certain aspects of life here in this beautiful country. For many years, he was a regular contributor to a now-defunct New Zealand magazine called Rainbow News, which was a spiritual sort of new-agey type of magazine that I used to devour eagerly, not because I believed in everything or actually even most that was written in there, but because some of the articles resonated deeply with me. It was from that magazine that I first learned about the still relatively little-known Kaimanawa Wall, deep in the middle of the Kaimanawa State Forest. Gary is a leading writer on the special nature of the mystic realms that are to be found in New Zealand and the South Pacific and leader of the Secret Land Project, an explorer of ancient sacred places and energy sites in the unique New Zealand landscape. Gary's devoted many years of searching and writing of the wonders to be found within the islands of New Zealand and the South Pacific. Research by the Secret Land Project has revealed much of the 4,000-year-old history of New Zealand and the early comers to this land. Findings of the deeper history are not, at this stage, acknowledged by mainstream thought and academics. This land abounds in ancient wisdom and reveals much that has been lost but not forgotten. His extensive journeys and experiences allows Gary to share much of the deeper nature of the forest, the waters and the mountains, enabling us all to connect with the natural order in a deeper and more meaningful way. The author of two books in the Secret Land series, Gary is a regular contributor to Australian and New Zealand magazines, offering readers unique glimpses of the sacred landscape of Aotearoa, New Zealand. He holds an honorary doctorate of science, my very special guest, and I'd like to welcome back Gary Cook. So we've got, um, I've got a lot of stuff lined up for today on fairy tales, okay? Awesome. And this is going to be a program of nothing but fairies. And the accent awesome. is going to be on, I'll touch on <clears throat> the wider uh, view of fairies. Then I'm going to home in 
on sightings and things which have occurred in New Zealand, which will also be of interest to people overseas, because I'll mention this, or you can bring this up if you like. I do belong, I have for the past seven or eight years, belonged to an organization called the Fairy Investigation Society, which is found, was founded a number of years ago by an academic from um, Oxford University, a professor of medieval uh, literature. And so he, he commenced a worldwide fairy census to get people to write in from all around the world of their fairy expenses in their lifetime. And so initially he received something like 700 replies from around the world, including more than a handful from New Zealand. And I thought this was rather interesting, actually. And uh, I'm going to be writing uh, an article for the uh, society uh, very soon to do with um, sightings that I have recorded with people in New Zealand, which I'll share with you later as we go. So that's it. And I'll, I'll, um, I've got a lot of things to sort of read from here. I'll be doing a lot of reading because um, there's a lot of names here, a lot of Maori names, which I have to get my tongue around. Okay. And so I hope that we'll find this of interest. Oh, that's brilliant. Most of my topics, of course, in more recent years have been on music of the plants. Right. But also now I can see the tie-in uh, with the fairy realms and also the elemental realms and the plant elementals and things like that. Mm. It, absolutely. It's all, it's all interconnected, isn't it? It is. It is, yeah. And these days, particularly over the past couple of years, the veil between our dimensions has been absolutely thinning and buckling and tearing in places. So people are having more and more experiences uh, than they e ever had before because of, of the thinness of the dimensional veils. Oh, so you're yeah, you're so right. And it's... Um, <clears throat> Uh, a lot of people are um, quite confused by this. Uh, mm -hmm. Others, of course, uh, are overjoyed because they're having this connection. But I do get a lot of contacts with people sharing little stories. So um, I'd, I'd like to um, open with a, uh, a little quotation here, if I may. And this sure. is from uh, Rudolf Steiner. And I think a lot of people know who Rudolf Steiner was and what he has set up, which is still alive in the world today with his schools and his methods of teaching. And so he had to say, and I'll quote him here, growing up without fairy tales leads later to boredom, to world weariness. Indeed, it can even cause physical symptoms. Fairy tales can help to prevent illnesses. And the qualities that seep into our soul from fairy tales later emerge as a zest for life, enthusiasm for being alive, and an ability to cope with life, all of which can be seen even in old age. And that's incredible because when he talks about um, <clears throat> fairy tales, this is looking at the broad spectrum uh, stories that um, whether it's um, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, of course, <clears throat> which was... Um, highlighted when Disney, Disney made, made the film, of course. But all these wonderful stories and um, the Brothers Grimm and um, all the little stories that we heard as children, it's important that the children of today hear these stories and mm -hmm. uh, read these stories. And uh, 
I think that this then becomes the, the duty, I guess, or if not the duty, the role of grandparents like myself. If we don't have the opportunity to read stories to our grandchildren, at least send them a book on, on fairy tales. Nowadays, mm -hmm. it's so easy for them to grab the little <laughs> iPad like my grandchildren in England. When I'm talking to them, it's a hard job to get them off the iPad and look at me <laughs> on my screen because they're so busy. So, but the actual book with illustrations in is, uh, I think, far, far more effective than children looking at a screen. And okay. so looking at that, um, I'm just going to be reading from a few notes I've got here. No worries. The fairy folk, so well known to our ancestors, all but disappeared from most parts of the industrialised, modern, steam-driven world. Their peaceful way of living shattered by the progress of modern man into the age of machinery. Many safe dwelling places came under threat as humans spread more and more into the landscape. These little people then became invisible to us, only showing themselves on rare occasions. They were many in shape and size and usually quite elusive. It would appear that many folk living in rural areas or near forests and mountains in all parts of the world are finding a reconnection with these forest dwellers. Those who work within nature and the natural order are having contacts with these little folk, hearing and in some cases actually seeing these beings. Now, how we perceive these tiny folk is shaped through the history handed down to this day in the form of stories and legends. There is about them a magical glamour that requires us at the right moment to stop and listen to their voices and their songs to hear their laughter and merriment. In fact, it would seem that they are now drawing attention to themselves, and this may have not a little to do with the damage that is occurring in our natural environment due to human folly of attempting to subdue the landscape rather than live in balance and harmony with nature. There is no clear classification for these very folk as they beguile us with much that is magic and insubstantial. There are local names and descriptions for these beings in all parts of the world, the old world and the modern world. So you can see, Marianne, that um, there is uh, a great awakening around the world, and I guess mm. that um, I'm privileged to come in contact with a lot of people around the world and a lot of stories which are emerging. And um, <clears throat> some people may say, in, in criticising what people are experiencing, well, this is just your imagination. It's just, um, you know, um, you're in a funny state and what, if, what are you on and what have you <laughs> yeah. been smoking or something like that. But yeah. nothing to do with that at all because these things or these events where there is a, a momentary contact can happen when one least expects it. But we'll get into that a little later on. I actually am very aware that people are 
particularly today and particularly now with the US government pretty much coming out and acknowledging the existence of UFOs, that people are really searching, trying to find their place again with everything that's gone on in the world around us at this point in time. People are seeking. uh, So really people are looking to reconnect with nature, reconnect with a simpler way of life, I think. And more and more people are accepting that there are other life forms other than what we are currently aware of in this reality. And I think that's a really good thing. No, you're quite right. And um, it's quite interesting too when we use the term um, reconnecting with nature as I've possibly shared with you before. We've never been disconnected in a way. Mm. Truly, we are entirely connected with nature we are beings of nature we are just as natural as the as the as the fish in the pond and the bird in the sky and the tree in the forest and um, we're all composed of the same elements it's just that we're all put together in a different way in a different shape and you know we look like humans and we look like um, a rock or we look like um, a waterfall so no no and it's just incredible that you know that um People are now opening themselves up. And I, I, I feel, uh, Marianne, it is to do with um, everything that is going on in the world at the moment. And mm-hmm. with the advent of this um, pandemic, as they like to call it, which uh, is ever-present uh, in our lives now in the daily news and things of this nature. And um, when we go out to shop, we are presented with uh, a form to sign or a, um, a little picture to, to scan if we have a smartphone or something like that. So these things are ever-present pre- and they're sort of here. They're almost sitting mm. on our shoulder. And I think for some people, these have become quite a heavy thought sitting on their shoulders and uh, it's, it doesn't, doesn't suit them. It, 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 it doesn't help their health and their well-being. So yeah. this is why people are now looking and seeking other ways of um, of, of enlightenment or other ways of, of seeking answers. I guess mm. there's no answer really to what is going on, and we won't go into that and look at the philosophical reasons behind the condition of the world today. But instead, let's just look at the theories. And yes. I'm just going to bring you into now all of you out there, um, into, uh, I'm going to quote from a book written in 1905 by a well-known New Zealand author called James Cullen. He was a journalist and worked on a number of major newspapers in New Zealand, but he also used to write columns, but he travelled around New Zealand recording old stories and things, talking to the elders, the Māori elders and that before they passed, recording their stories. So naturally, he recorded things to do with fairies. And so this book I'm going to quote from is entitled Fairy Folk Tales of the Māori. And so it goes on to say, Māori legends of the Patapai Avehi, which is one of the names given by the Māori people to the hidden folk. 
Now, he starts off by saying, a New Zealand poet once lamented the dearth of fairy law in the islands of New Zealand, and in his ignorance made a complaint. Why have we in these isles no fairy dell, no haunted wood, no wild enchanted mare? So, of course, um, James Cohen rose to this challenge and said, oh, my gosh. He said, this man declared that this lack of fairy glamour must be filled by the imaginative writer. The poet's art is yet without avail, must weave the story. So the uh, writer was saying, you know, there's nothing here, so let's make something up and weave the story. Mm. James Cohen goes on to say, it was unfortunate that a writer with so sympathetic a muse had never heard of a Māori's rich store of fairy legend and wonder tales, of endless folk talk about the supernatural, the sprites of the woods, the elusive patapayadehi, the mysterious wild men of the mountains, the strange spirits that haunt great pools at river sources and streams and lakes. For all of this in endless variety we have in New Zealand. There is not another country, not even Ireland, or the fairy-ridden Isle of Man, so full of folk memories and primitive beliefs of this kind. What a statement. My gosh. He goes on to write. The only reason that the newcomers, the Pākehā to this land, does not know of it is that very, very few have gone to the trouble to delve into this class of myth and tradition and preserve while there is yet time that the curious and poetic tales which crystallize for us the Maori belief in unseen presences and the fairy folk that haunted many a lofty mountain and many a shadowy wood. I love the way he writes. Very poetic. Mm. Fairies, giants, fabulous monsters, marvel-working magicians, strange apparitions of forest and alp have ever been found in countries of such a mountainous, broken, and generously wooded character as New Zealand. And it would be strange indeed if so imaginative a race as the Maori Polynesian had not peopled the land with all manner of curious extra human beings. Poetic above all the other myths of the strange and supernatural are the many stories which tell of the mystic race, the Patupai Arehi. This name is the term applied by the Māori to the mysterious forest-dwelling people who, for want of a more exact term, may be described as the fairies of New Zealand. They are spoken of as an iwi atua, a race of supernatural beings, and they are accredited with some of the marvellous powers attributed to the world of fairy in many other parts of the globe. Now, some folk tales of the Māori describe them as little people, but the native fancy does not usually picture them as the tiny elves common to the old world fairydom that we know. Most of the legends that the writer has gathered gives them the extraordinary stature of mortals, while at the same time investing them with some of the characteristics of the enchanted tribes of other lands. Mm. The Patapayarehi were, for the most part, of a much lighter complexion than the Māori. 
Their hair was of the dull golden or reddish hue. Ure kuhu, such as is sometimes seen amongst Māori people even today. They inhabited the remote parts of the wooded ranges, preferring the highest peaks such as um, Hihikiwi on Mount Polongia and the summit of Mount Te Aroha. They ventured out only by night and on days of heavy clouds and fog. They lived on forest foods, but sometimes they resorted to the shores of sea and lake for fish. They had a great aversion to the steam rising from the Māori cooking ovens and to the sight and smell of kokawai, which is a red ochre, which is made from hermitite earth mixed with oil. And this red ochre with which the Māori bedaubed his dwellings and sometimes himself. They were greatly skilled in all manner of enchantments and magic, and they often employed these arts of grammarie to bewilder and terrify the Iwi Māori. Nevertheless, we find them at times living in good terms with the Māori neighbours. The Pataparehi and a number of these fairy tales constituted themselves the guardians of sacred places and visited, visited their displeasure on those who neglected the rights for the propitiation of the forest deities. So here we have now, Marianne, a interesting glimpse into how the, the Māori, the iwi Māori of New Zealand, regarded these little people, the forest dwellers. And right. emerging with what I'm sharing with you, there seems to be that perhaps they were a small race of people just lived <clears throat> up in the forest. So perhaps they had moved into these uh, regions which uh, were to move away from the Māori, uh, Polynesian Māori who had arrived in New Zealand and were settling here. So uh, there is two schools of thought here. Were they indeed a small diminutive race of people mm. who moved further and further into the forests and the mountains to separate themselves and then just disappeared? Or were they indeed a race of fairy people, which I find quite intriguing. This class of fairy folktales no doubt originated in the actual existence of numerous tribes of people who dwelt for safety in the more inaccessible parts of these islands. Many of them were reddish-haired with fairy complexions than those of the Māori, the remnants of an immeasurably ancient fair-haired people who have left a strain of Udekuhu in most Maori tribes. So the dense and thickly matted character of the New Zealand forest, with a closely woven roof of foliage through which the sunshine was filled to a twilight in the inner sanctuaries of the wild Taupu Nui Atane, made strong impression on the imaginative Maori mind. And it was natural to people, the heart of the bush, with unseen presences and supernatural creatures dwelling there. The conjecture provoking sounds heard in the forest in the quiet of night, noises known to those who have camped out in the New Zealand forest in the high woods, heightened the popular belief of the existence of the fairy folk. So in the North Island, the stories that have remained through to this very, very day tell of these little people associated chiefly with the forested peaks of the 
Waikatu, Waipa Basin, the Cape Colville Te Aroha Range, and the hills above Lake Rotorua, Nongataha, mm. and the beautiful mountain Kakepuku in the Waipa Valley was a fairy resort. There is a deep wooded valley on the western side, beloved of the Patapairehi from the Porongia Mountain. They did not venture to other parts of the mountain because they sometimes saw the Māori fires burning on the northern and eastern sides, and their paths were in the drifting clouds and low-lying banks of fog. So once again, Marianne, we are looking here at, um, are we looking at a, a real live uh, people here? Why are we looking mm. at something which takes on the air of um, fairy-like qualities by being elusive and um, not wanting to uh, have any recourse with, with Māori, with iwi Māori? So stories of, of this nature abound throughout this land. And now I'm going to talk a little in depth here about the Patapārehi tribe, as they were called, of Nongataha, which is a big hill behind Rotorua, which is so known to people. Today, of course, nestled at the foot of Nongataha down to the edge of Lake Rotorua is the city of Rotorua. And, of course, on the slopes on the uh, city side, of course, they put up gondolas and big things and you go up there and, and play and have fun. But still today, on the upper part and the back part of Nongataha, it is known by people who live in Rotorua that the Patapairu here still there and they can be heard at night. Never seen, but heard. Mm. So this is a report <clears throat> written a long time ago. The partly wooded mountain Nongkataha, rising above the southwest shore of Lake Rotorua, was a principal haunt of the Patapairehi people in Rotorua. The fairy pa was at the <clears throat> Tuahu o Te Atua on the summit of the mountain. And there were also fairy villages on the neighbouring range called Tiraho o Tirangapere. And at, at another site, an earthwork defended path at the foot of the mountain on the northern side near the Waitete stream. So even up to the present day, there are traces of where these people were living. And who's to say they're still not living there, living in mm -hmm. the realm in which they dwell with comfort and security. Right. So the name of the tribe um, was Natirua, and the chiefs of that tribe in the days of my ancestors were Ihanga, and they were Turihu, Tirangi Tamai, Altonga Kohu, Rotokohu. And these people were very numerous. There were a thousand or perhaps many more on Nongataha. They were an iwi atua, which is a godlike race of people of supernatural powers. In appearance, some of them were very much like the Māori people of that day. Others resembled the Pākehā or the white race. The complexion of most of them was kiri pufero, which was a reddish skin. And their hair had the red or golden tinge, 
which were called Urukehu. And some of their women were very beautiful, very fair of complexion, with shining fair hair. They wore chiefly the flax garment called the Pekerangi, dyed a red colour. They also wore the rough mats Poru and Purakeke. In the disposition, they were peaceful. They were not war-loving, angry people. Their food consisted of the products of the forest. And they also came down to the lake in Rotorua to catch Inanga, the white mate. There was one curious characteristic of this Patapai Rehi. They had a great dread of the steam that rose from cooked food. So in the evening, when the Māori people living close to the mountain and other places nearby, the ferry abodes opened, or when they opened their cooking hangis, all the Patapai retired to their houses immediately. They saw the clouds of vapour rising from the cooking and shut themselves up. They were afraid of the steam, which is interesting. So when the Māoris many generations ago set fire to the ferns and forests on the slopes of Nongataha and destroyed much of the vegetation, even up to the borders of Titahu, there were great lamentations amongst the fairy tribe and they wept for the mountain devastated by the fires of the strangers most of them departed from their ancient haunts and migrated northwards and to Moiha which is up by Cape Colwell in the Coromandel Peninsula on the persuasion of the chief Olotokohu so they had a famous song that they sang a farewell song it's very very moving Yet there are still fairies on Nongataha to this day, says the lady telling the story. On dim and cloudy days, and when the mist descends and about the mountain sides, the thin voices of the Patapai Rehi people may be heard high up on the mountains, and also the music of their flutes, the Potorino. So it is not well to go out hunting wild pigs on the mountain slopes at such times. And in the heart of the island, there was a Patupai Rehi chief or Atua of wonderful powers, of Nati Mani Apoto, and his name was Te Riaro, and his home was the Tongariro and the Kai Manawa Ranges. So, as we look deeper into this, and there are still recorded stories amongst Iwi Māori and New Zealand of various locations throughout the North Island why most of these stories are coming from the North Island was the fact the denser populations in the central part of the North Island and up into the northern part, um, this is where the Iwi Māori, when they arrived, settled mostly in the North Island, uh, settled mostly in the, in the uh, uh, more beneficial climates for, for growing food and things like this, and close mm. to estuaries and river mouths and um, good fishing grounds. So as their races increased, the pressure would have come on the forest dwellers to move further and further out. Um, there are stories about um, the South Island, uh, who they talk about the um, Mairo, which was a wild man and a giant, giant of the mountains. We won't go there today. Right. That's another story. Yeah. Yes. And and it, uh, it's interesting, Gary, sorry to interrupt. The areas where you talk about the Patapārehe being so far are also the areas where the Moiho man and other beings also exist. 
that's exactly right. <clears throat> and it was very interesting to um, hear those stories which came to light in the, in the 1960s uh, about mm. Moiha Man and uh, how they sort of, uh, the stories rolled on for quite a few years of various sightings of various things which were occurring. And so I guess that um, not have, ever having spoken to uh, men in Māori from the area up there, I have a feeling that they would have known of these beings. They would have perhaps right. known who they were and why they came through. Because the Moihau Mountain itself is a very, very sacred place up there. Well known to the local iwi in the area as the dwelling place of the Patapaiwehi. There was a big stone put in place up there to commemorate a famous chief many, many generations ago. But other than that, people don't go up there. Um, they keep away from it with reverence. I know people have been up there in recent times to photograph it and walk. It's a ma massive climb apparently up there. But then on the seaward side, um, on the other side of the, of the peninsula, of course, you drop down steeply in, into the ocean and it's all wooded and forested. So there are lots of stories still in those areas. Mm -hmm. And I guess these are stories which are, are told um, on mud eyes to this day and told to young children who wish to listen by the, told by the, uh, the law keepers and the, and the storytellers. So it's, um, no, it's um, interesting too that I guess looking at um, forest areas all over this land, there would be stories uh, from all major forest areas. So mm. I just want to speak here a little more now about just to, um, and I write, I've written here, I, I wrote this article a long time ago, and many hapu have stories that reference much of the activities and dwelling place of these mysterious folk. I am speaking here of the fairy folk, whose names were given as Patapaerehi, Turihu, and Hekertoro. And the existence of these fairy or elf-like forest dwellers was well known by Maori in distant times. Now, the work of Elsden Best, who was an incredible anthropologist and researcher, who lived for seven years with the Ottawa people and also in the Uruwiras with the Duhoi people, in his well-researched book, The Māori, published in 1924, contains information on the fairy folk that was shared with him over the seven years he lived among the Tuhoi and the Uruwira. In volume one on page 219, he writes, the Māori firmly believed in the existence of these creatures and often speaks to them as though they were human beings. The most interesting particular concerning these forest folk is that the, they are described as being a fair-skinned people having light or reddish-coloured hair. Elizabeth goes on to say that as a collector of information, he was often puzzled by the contradictory nature of much of the data he gathered. But for all of this, he was able to establish much of a certain validity from which emerged that which he was prepared to publish. He listened to the most realistic tales of the Turu, abducting women and dwelling in communities on forest-clad ranges. Mm. And he writes others or storytellers, however, informed him that these forest folk were naught but waidua tangata, human spirits or souls. Some asserted that they are spirits of the dead, 
others that they are spirits of living persons, and so statements differed. Evidently, all believed in the existence of these forest dwellers, but people had vague ideas as to their nature, which, after all, is no doubt quite natural. And a, a peculiar feature of all accounts of the Turahu folk is that they were often heard talking, singing, and playing flutes up on the wooded hills and ranges, and especially so on dull, misty days. They are not the same as human beings, but are sometimes indistinctly seen by man. They are said to be very tapu folk, and if one of the hamlets or villages were visited by man, they would utterly desert it and disappear to settle elsewhere. Maori sometimes state that the Turahu folk were the first occupants of these isles. Titini oti hokutui, the multitude of hautua, is a name applied to bands of forest elves inhabiting other lands, which was the former home of the Maori before they came to New Zealand. They acted as guardians of the forest. These were the fairy folk who caused the fronds of our tree ferns to assume a drooping, drooping aspect. Originally, they were quite rigid. So it, um, I guess where my interest really developed in researching the, uh, the fairy folk of the forest in New Zealand started probably um, more than 20 years ago. And um, I was given a story which occurred around 60 years ago. And I'll just give you the story. And this is when two young Maori men recently returned from the battlefields of World War II and were working as contractors in the Waimaa Valley inland from the Hokianga. And the story came from Karaka Paikia Holui. So now I wrote the story a while ago, and this will be 70 years or more now since they came home from the war. Mm. So they were given a contract to work in the Waimaa Valley, which was being, the land was being broken in there in the Fat Valley for what they call rehab farmers, which were return servicemen mm. that were going to be granted land on which to farm. And their job was to put in fences and dig some drainage and things like this. So they were there for many, many months. And um, they just relied on um, food being brought in by their boss or their manager up to the top of the road, which uh, once a week or once every two weeks, and just carrying on working. So um, now on some days after work was finished, Karaka and his friend Peter would take a rifle and go hunting up the slope of the steep hills that lined the valley to the south of where they're working. And what they were hunting, which was something that one wouldn't um, embark upon today, they were hunting Kiru, the bush pigeon, who were very plentiful around that area up there. And of course, in those long gone days, they were often taken by food or for food by the Māori people. And so they just looked at a way of um, getting past their bland diet. And of course, in those days, there were no other birds of any consequence. They, there were no um, pheasants and things like this, and rabbits hadn't been introduced up there. There were no possums. So looking for something fresh in the way of meat, they were looking at birds. 
And so over a period of weeks, every so often they'd go out and had a single shot 22 rifle. And I think Peter might have been Karaka, uh, was a good shot. And so they would take one or two birds for the pot. But after a period of time, they found that they were having to go further and further afield because the birds were getting a bit less. Either they had culled them or the birds were getting wise and flying off. So now where they were bivied and where they'd been hunting was at the base of a very, very tall, precipitous slope, which went right up above the Waimana Valley <clears throat> onto the big, big flatlands up top. They're covered in bush. So they found that um, over a period of time, they were moving more and more up the hill, trying to find the birds. And on a particular uh, foray, uh, it was in summer, so there were plenty of daylight hours, <clears throat> they made their way right up the slope, hanging onto the trees and the vines, and got up to the top. And um, so on this day, the game that were often proved quite elusive. And the pair eventually found they'd traversed the steep slopes to come out on the tops. A flat area of long grass opened up before them, leading over there to the forest line. This often happens in the New Zealand forests in the wild. You can be out in the forests hunting and you'll come to an area which is clear. All that is there is long grass, nothing growing. Makes one wonder what might have happened there to the trees, why didn't they grow there? And so when they got up there and they were looking around and they spotted a pigeon right across the other side of the clearing, they could see the white pigeon fluttering out in the trees over there. So um, they thought that um, they'd go and have a look, but they found the ground over there was <clears throat> quite uneven. There were a few rocks and things up there on the top of this flat area. And as Peter uh, moved around a, a low clump of um, bushes, his foot snagged on a dry branch hidden in the long grass. And he lost his footing and fell back into a small clump of tea tree growing there. Okay. And crashed into that. And, um, and this had an incredibly surprising uh, result. As this happened, and um, Caracas turned around to see what was up with Peter, five small figures sprang up from behind the bush and ran away from the two men on a tangent. So both Peter and Karaka were just as surprised as obvious as this group that was rapidly running across towards the tree line, more or less towards where the, they'd spotted this um, kiruru across the other side on the bush line. And Karaka's first thought was, oh, that surprised a group of school kids. And what were they doing up here? Nine or 10 year olds wagging school. Then they noted that they were not children, but in fact, slightly built adults. And they had assumed a stoop posture as they ran away from the man, obviously to adopt the low profile. And the angle at which the group were running gave the two men a side view that allowed a number of features to be noticed. The figures had blonde shoulder length hair and white skin. They were startled to notice that two of the group had white, close-cropped beards. They were not children. Karaka could not tell whether the group were a mixture of male or female. 
Figures were naked to the waist and wore a short skirt-like garment around their middles made from sharp elongated leaves. And the leaves were layered and bounced as they ran. They were green in colour and appeared to be freshly cut. And Karaka, as you told us, was sure the leaves were from the Pufarifari or Kiki plant. Some within the group also carried small baskets of kites with long straps that crossed the torso on a diagonal from shoulder to hip. These objects appeared to be made from leaves of the cabbage or titi tree. The fleeing figures crossed through two clear patches and were thought to have been in view for about 40 seconds. And when the group reached the forest edge on the other side, one of them stood fully erect and turned to look back to where the two men were standing. And then, as if satisfied, they were not being followed, disappeared into the trees. Karaka's first comment was, boy, could they run for such small people? It was then decided when they chatted about this, that they were not children, lost or otherwise, but Tudehu, the Patipayrehi. The man did not follow them into the forest. And then their story goes on to tell of a small dome stone, stone, stone structure that was hidden within a clump of bushes. This was thought to be the dwelling place of the little people. So this was a story which enlivened me to start to look closely at things. We took an affidavit from um, Kuraka. Peter was not available at the time. And we spoke to him on three different occasions. The story never varied. And um, he was able to give uh, quite good descriptions of their, their height, uh, their stature, what they were wearing and things like this. And the conclusion, I mean, the first uh, thought was, well, they're kids. And, of course, they soon disallowed that when they saw exactly what they were. And also, they were nowhere near a settlement. This was land which was being broken in. There was no school nearby. It was miles away. And what were children doing up the top of this hill? So right. what was it they saw? Who was it they saw? So mm. then I started to look more closely. And as I was doing a lot of exploration work, looking into the uh, first comers to this land, the Waitaha people, looking for traces of them up north, I went to lots of areas and had my own personal experiences. But then I thought that... Um, there's something here. Perhaps I should start putting information together. So I started to gather a few anecdotes, which I did. Uh, and then I thought, wow, there's enough information here with the anecdotal information I've got, perhaps to uh, make a documentary. So I put an advertisement um, in all the northern newspapers up north, and this is north of Auckland or in the uh, way up in the far north. And the newspaper ad, which must have made some people think twice, I just said, where's the effect that I'm looking for any stories of contact people may have had in recent times, either on their farm or while hunting in the forest with some small people, if not children, that they thought, thought they were children. And I got a few responses, which was amazing, actually, because... Um, and then I came to the conclusion that a lot of the... Uh, contacts, present-day contacts, uh, which are sight-only, 
no personal contact, but seeing mm. what's coming virtually from farmers and hunters, people in the outdoors. Um, and then I, right. I had a wonderful story come to me, and this is about a, um, a young Māori man, Waimamaku, which is right up uh, north of um, Waipua Forest, right across the mountains from where Peter and Karaka had their story, but in the same massive forest area. And this young Māori man had taken on a, uh, uh, an assignment and a job to work for one of the people who was paid to trap and poison possums in the forest. And this young Māori man's job was to go up the end of the Waimamaku Valley and start to work his way up the side of all the hills, right up the ridges, cutting a trail all the way up to enable people then to come and lay the poison and you know, for the possums and things like this. So away he goes on his first day, he had his dog with him, and he starts <clears throat> with his machete and his um, whatever he was using, clearing away the bush to cut a little swath through up to the top of the hills. And so he worked diligently, and um, by about three to four o'clock, he got right at the top. And once again, he was amazed to come across a clear area up there where there was just grasses growing, native grasses. And, oh, and then he saw what appeared to be as if something had been walking through the grasses where it was down a bit. It was like a little trail. And his first thought was, oh, there's pigs around here. It could be pigs. And then he said, okay, well, I better start looking around for somewhere now to set up my camp for the night. He's carrying all his gear on his back, had his food and had his fly to set up his tent and his sleeping bag. And then he looked down at the ground as he took his um, rucksack off and put it down. And there laying on the ground was a small kite or flax kit, quite green in colour. And he thought, oh, what's this head doing here? He picked it up and looked at it and said, wow, this is freshly made. This is green. Who on earth would have been up here? Now, this was miles away from tramping tracks. It wasn't on the known um, tracks that they put in years ago for trampers and foresters and hunters to go through. Right. So I thought, wow. So he picked it up and he's looking at it and he flexed the top open, looked inside and he saw a twine in there. So he put his fingers in and pulled out a cord which had been beautifully woven from flax. And on the end of the cord was a bone, a small bone fish hook. He looked at it, he looked at the kite, through his mind he said, oh my gosh, put it quickly back in the kite, dropped it on the ground, and he said to himself, oh, this is a patapagahe, the fairy folk, I can't stay here, I can't stay here. So he put all his gear on, got his pack together and his tools, took off back down the hill, managed to get back down to where his vehicle was and drove out to where his, uh, the man he was working for was living in Waimanaku and said, I cannot carry on with this job. He said, I have intruded in the land of the Patapayadehi up there and I cannot go on. I must give up the job. So that was a case of, um, mm. of superstition. Mm -hmm. 
and um, understanding that these um, uh, people were um, to be feared and, and not to be uh, right. played with. Yeah, so it's... Um, hmm. And I have often spoken to folk who have heard voices and laughter and the sound of flute and song in northern forest areas. Mm. And these experiences often have many similar features, such as being aware of others in the forest near to where they are walking, hearing chattering voices and laughter. And even at the time of um, the governor of New Zealand, Sir George Grey, um, was traveling around the Hokianga Harbor being taken to visit Maori um, villages there. He writes of having observed a number of the, on the Hokianga where he described them as being very cheerful and always singing. He was told that they were Potapairehi. Their hair was fair, as was their skin. They were different from the Maori and did not resemble them at all. And another early writer uh, who did a lot of recording of information in northern New Zealand, the Reverend um, Robert Taylor, tells us that the Patapai Rehi were seen only early in the mornings, wore white garments and carried their infants as Europeans did, which is quite different the way Māori carried theirs. So there were some interesting reports there. Actually, it's really interesting that you talk about the uh, Pirarino. I don't know if I shared with you, but when we get to more recent stories, I had a uh, lady share an experience with me that she had around a topo area. Interesting. Yes, well, it, it seems that uh, I, I love this, um, Marianne, because um, the more we put these things out there, this then allows and enlivens other people to start to talk about things Great. because sometimes it's um, it's just a, you know uh, an experience of some sort which they just push to one side and they're thinking a bit of a mystery what was it where was it right you know so but the, the mysteries go on and um, and I guess one of the the major stories that um, <clears throat> other than what uh, Graka and Peter shared with us, um, and it was just such a, a beautiful thing that uh, when I first heard that, I thought, wow, how can we explain this? Mm. But then I started to gather more stories, which suddenly it everything came to life, you know, as far as um, possibilities go. So um, then uh, I guess one of my most favorite stories came to us, and uh, it was my dear friend Noel Hillier who got the story for me and took the affidavits of the people involved. And this goes back to, um, it was um, probably um, in the late, um, late 90s. Okay, good, good, good. Let me think about this. Doesn't matter, 20 years ago. Let's say 20 years ago. Okay. In April. And there was a group of young men mostly uh, Māori men, and they were forestry workers. And they had been working uh, during the week uh, on a contract, felling pine trees up in the Hokianga area, which is north of Waipua Forest. Right. And they, most of them lived further down the coast towards Dargaville, 
and a place called Kaihu, which is just uh, the site of Darkville. And um, they camped up there and um, lived in cabins and things, but they always went home on the weekends. Friday night, they always headed off home. And Sunday night, they um, came back up to <clears throat> go to work. So this was the ritual. And this particular Friday night, they a little bit later getting away, and it was April, so it was um, getting quite dark, and uh, between 8 and 8.30, I'm not too sure the exact time, we've got any approximation, they were driving through the Waipua Forest, which is a Kauri forest up north. And um, the drive through from the northern aspects is quite long and windy, and you're going downhill a lot until you get to the Waipua River, then you go up the other side, and then out into the farmland and on to Dargaville. So away they went. And there were five of them, sorry, six of them in the van at the time. Now, this was a, a big sort of truck affair. And there were three of them sitting in the front seat, with their seatbelts on, no doubt. <clears throat> and the rest of them hunkered down in the back. And they're going to be pleased to get home to see their families. But also, um, one thing they were quite keen to do is... Um, the tradition was on the on the way back down the weekend, they'd stop at the Kaihu Tavern, which is a little pub on the side of the road, a historic place, have a couple of beers. A couple of them got off there because they lived in Kaihu. The others would go on another 25 minutes or so to Dargaville. So winding their way down, and they're getting closer and closer to where <clears throat> the road went across the Waipua River. And they were at about the third of the large, sharp corners coming down to the river. People in the back were dozing off, and even the guys in the front were a bit dopey. But thank goodness the driver, <clears throat> who was the overseer of, of the whole thing, he was, and he's driving, and suddenly he slams on the brakes of the vehicle. Everything virtually screeches to a halt. The blokes in the back were tumbled all over the place, and got guys in the front sort of came awake suddenly. And the van had come to a halt. And there in the headlights, a matter of only a few metres ahead, because they'd just come around a corner, was a line of what they perceived initially as children walking across the road in front of the van. Mm. And this was from the um, right-hand side of the van across <clears throat> the left. And so the guys in the back sort of came around and said, what's going on? What's going on? They're all clamoring forward to look at why he had stopped and there. They were witnessing. And we believe that within this group, which they were trying to make out what it was, first of all came the chatter. Oh, what are these children doing out here at night, walking across the main road like that? Where's their torches? Where's their high-vis gear? Where's their teachers? Ooh. And then someone said, I know this area. There's no tracks or trails around here <clears throat> because the river is uh, the bank that they just came up just dropped steeply down to the river. Right. Um, and someone said, they're not kids. They're patapairei. And suddenly <clears throat> it electrified the van because there was a stillness came and people were actually in a bit of a state of shock, but actually yeah. a couple of young Māori men, they were virtually shaking. And so there was no count kept, but there was at least 20 little figures, pale of complexion, 
wearing, they couldn't make out any shape um, to the garments and that, but they were white because they were reflecting the light back. Barely a look into the car lights. They just walked slowly from right to left and up the bank and disappeared between a couple of kauri trees. So straight away, the guys got themselves together and they could see this, whatever it was, had finished. And they headed back on the road, possibly driving a little um, faster, I don't know, but also um, wide awake. I can't imagine. And when they got the kaihu and dropped the boys off, they didn't stop for a drink that night. They shot straight home to um, Dargaville. And so two of the young men uh, spoken to said they would never, ever drive through the forest again, ever at night time. They were scared. And so once again, it's part of um, the superstition around these people. Mm-hmm. The stories were often given um, or told of these, of these people uh, on the Marae, the fact that they were devious and they were mischievous and they were naughty and they could do you harm, mm-hmm. a bit like the Tanifa was often used to frighten little children not to swim in the river because right. the Tanifa was on that corner. So there was a superstition. Um, and um, so we got very good descriptions from three of those people. And um, that was a, a, an amazing story. So there, of course, I thought, wow, what's going on here? Up to 20 little figures, mm. all about the same size and in a row walking across the road. So then things started to roll out for me, and I was down in the um, Puriora Forest, which is a major forest in the centre of the North Island, south Waikato, uh, north of um, <clears throat> uh, of Taupo. And uh, I often went there to be with groups of people for three or four-day retreats and just to you know, do things as we do in the forests. Right. And this was probably my third visit there. And um, there was a big group in this weekend. There was about 25, 30 people, a couple of young kids with, um, with their parents. And we went to bed fairly early on this particular night. And um, I had a, a bunk room all to myself, so um, which was good. I like a bit of privacy. And uh, I like to snore on my own without disturbing anybody. <laughs> and so the... Um, the um, um, I just settled down in my sleeping bag, hadn't quite gone to sleep, and I was right under a window, even though there was the bunk right by, there was a window at my head there, mm. okay, and on the back wall, and suddenly there was tapping on the window, and then laughter, children had laughter, I thought, oh, God, what the heck's going on? What are those kids doing? My immediate thought was, the young kids with their parents way down the hallway in the bunk room. Right. So I clambered up out of bed, stumbling around. You know, it's like trying to get out of a sleeping bag in the dark and you <laughs> don't know where you are. <laughs> and so I get out of my sleeping bag and throw the window, well, pull the curtains back, push out the window and look out in the moonlight. Nothing, just grass, beautiful, clear, nothing there. I look down the side of the building. Nothing. Oh. Okay. I thought, well, that's a bit weird. I thought, but those kids must be having fun. So, <clears throat> close the window, pull the curtains, just sitting on the edge of the bed, getting back into my sleeping bag. On the window again. 
this time I was ready for action because I was still half in and half out. Right. Stood up quickly, pulled the curtains back, opened the window, leaned out, ready to say something. No one there. And I thought, those kids must be quick. I said, but I could be quicker. So grabbed my torch, opened the door down the passageway to the other one of the other bunk rooms where there was um, three or four people plus the parents of the two kids sleeping. And opened the door, my torch out, shot it in, and I knew where the kids were bunked down. Right. There were the two little kids in bed, flat out asleep as only children can be. And everyone was asleep in there. I thought, my goodness, what's going on here? This is so weird. So next morning, I was talking to the Kaumatawa, and I said, listen, something happened to me last night. And I recounted my little case. Oh, he said, that was the Patapaidehi. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, they were there last night. He said, I was out on the side veranda around the back where I've been staying, having a cigarette, he said, smoking out there. And he said they came round and they were calling out to me and singing, dancing. I said, what? He said, yes. He said, that's who it was. That's why they come and tapped on your window. I thought, oh, so what's going on here? So um, this is one of the things which really sort of got me hot on the trail. And then another very interesting uh, story, Miriam. We're not running out of time. No, no, not at all. Okay, well we're we're on, aren't we? Yeah, we are. I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. Here. Let's keep going. Okay, uh, a few years before this particular incident, when we're on one of our archaeological research missions, we had travelled to a place called Potu Point, which is on the mouth of the Kaipara Harbour, on the northern side of the of the Kaipara Harbour, which is right up north of Auckland and. Um, <clears throat> The Potu Point, um, there's an old uh, fashioned lighthouse there which has been uh, rebuilt and it's a, a touristy place. But we had gone up there. There was a group of about six or seven of us and we'd gone to do some research work on whether or not this was the site or one of the sites where the ancient Waitaha people had lived in Northland before they moved further south right. under pressure. Um, for land and um, possessions and things like that. And so with us was a Waitaha Tawhito Kaumatawa, an elder, and his son, Noel Hilliam, then the curator of the Dagamul Museum, and myself, Raywin, and two or three others. And so we arrived in the afternoon, and we had come to actually make an observation this once again was midwinter. And the observation we had come to make down there was at the behest of the, um, the, the mother of the Waitaha. She, um, the elder, she had um, said that one way we can prove that this was the site of the Waitaha village is that at sunrise, when the sun is rising at a certain time of the year uh, to do with um, hills and things like this, um, we can then measure. And there were landmarks that she knew from the old stories. So her son, the elder, the Tafito um, Kamatawa, was given the coordinates and things of this nature. And so we had decided to come and camp out overnight 
to be up for dawn to see the sunrise and see if indeed this may be the site where the Waitaha village had existed before they'd moved on to the South Island. <clears throat> Deep story. Another big story in its own right, but that's for another day. So we camped out and um, we sit, were sitting down for the night and um, the elder came and said to us, he said, well, <clears throat> we have to be up before dawn in the morning, climb up that big, big sand dune there, and that'll give us a view to the east where we can see over our hills, other hills there, and see the mountain range in the distance, see the sun rise at a certain spot. So I said, I'll come round and give you a call in the morning, and we'll all go round. We'll have to go around a circuitous route up a big ridge to get to the top of the sand dune, because where we will be facing to the east, it's a very steep dune, which dropped down to the valley, soft sand. You couldn't climb up there. Right. So comes the next morning, and we thought, this is going to be exciting. Bedded down, and then there's a knock on my tent in the morning. You can't knock on tents. There was a bit of a rustle right. or scratching. And, and I thought, oh, Patrick. So i out of bed, and there was a Komato standing there. And he went and tapped on a few other tents, and Noel Hillian was the only other one to answer. The others were quite fast asleep, including Raven. So he said, let's go. So we climbed out and uh, got our torches and that. And uh, the sky was lightning, but um, it was still quite dark. Beautiful stars out there and just a little crescent moon out there in the distance. So we walked right the way around up the back of the camp, up this ridge, up to the top of the sand dune. And sure, there we were looking towards where the Downer Valley, the old lighthouse all painted white um, in the more, more early morning light, just standing out there on the hill. And beyond that, on that hill, the distant mountain range, and we could see where the sun was going to come up. We could see where it was going to start. But the amazing thing was, and I can't quite recollect um, what these were, there was an alignment of three stars over the crescent moon. There was a new moon, a crescent moon, and there were two stars directly up top and one below. And it was fascinating. That was not why we were there, I don't believe, but then again, it may have been. Mm. And so we stood there and looking at the sky, which was starting to lighten. And we thought, wow, we're going to have a clear view of exactly where the sun's going to come up. And then the Komatawa was, once he looked at that, he was to look at other landmarks to the left and right, one across the harbour mouth and the other sort of up the hill to our left. And then he would look at the alignments. Right. And so we were just standing up there, not even just looking, taking it in. And then suddenly a mist, a fog, started to come in over the hill, the low hill where the old uh, lighthouse was. And it was coming thick and fast, rolling down. And this is a, a thing which often happens that way. On the massive Kuiper Harbour, uh, a mist or fog would form, then a breeze could make it drift across the land or right. wherever. So here it was coming from the harbour, not from the sea, from the harbour over the hill. And... Uh, down over the lighthouse, and suddenly the lighthouse became obscured. And um, <clears throat> then it was rolling, and we're looking down the valley. It was rolling down the valley there. The three of us are looking at how quickly it was moving. And then in front of the mist, two figures walking in front of the mist towards the base of the hill or the dune where we were. 
And my first comment was, oh, gosh, must be someone from our camp. They want to come and join us and don't know where we are. So I um, got out my big 10 million candle power searchlight thing, yeah. which is so powerful, it only goes for about three minutes. And I shot it off down there and great big beam of light shot out, shot out down there, massive, and went off and on just to show them where we were about 80 or 90 foot up the steep, top of the steep dune. I said, I don't know how they're going to get up here. And so the mist kept rolling. These two figures were moving in front of the mist, one quite tall and one fairly short, towards the base of the hill. I thought, oh, they're coming on. I said, they're not going to be able to get up here. So I moved a bit further forward to look down the slope to where I'd intersected with the floor of the valley. And um, there were the two figures starting to move up the slope. I thought, Christ, how are they managing that? So I thought, I better tell them where we are. The closer, I shone my big flash torch down there, big beam light, shone along them, see who it was, and said, there was no one there. They'd gone, turned the torch off, and there they were. Mm. And the Komata said, oh, he said, I know what this is. You better step back. I said, okay. So Noel and I stepped right back. He said, just back there. He said, I'll greet them. And so he stood on the edge and we were back quite a few meters. And suddenly these two indistinct figures appeared in front of him. And I could see his hands moving and I could hear voices, but I couldn't make out anything. And then he turned around and started to walk back towards us. The two figures had gone. And I said, I said, what on earth was that? Oh, he said, um, he said, the ancient guardians of the site here, he said, they've come through to see who we are and why we're here. And I said, well, what do they look like? He said, well, he said, just look like you and I. He said, but they were wearing furs. He said, that's their garments were furs. And he said, they did exchange things with me, but I'm not at liberty to talk to you about it at this stage. So they disappeared. And we stood back there and um, did remember to look at the sunrise. The mist had gone because we hadn't sort of taken much notice. That, that disappeared. And the sun rose and we took um, those measurements that had to be taken. And it turned out that we were in close proximity to um, uh, Arahura. No, Ara, Arahanga. Sorry, Arahanga the last of the Waitaha villages in the North Island. So that was good. And as we were leaving later on that morning, uh, we had three vehicles and we broke camp after breakfast and um, started to head back to drive up the beach. And we went down below the sand dune that we had um, uh, been up that morning and then threw another smaller couple of smaller sand dunes onto the beach and we're going to beach drive for 100k, well, about 90k is back up the beach. And then as we came out, the lead vehicle stopped and the door suddenly flung open. And there was a harbour in front of us and the Komata leapt out and so, so did Noel leap out of us. And they're looking and saying, come here, come here. So we all got out and went. And he said, look, a whale, a whale. And there in the harbour mouth was a pilot whale swimming, blowing water up, splashing its tail. And he said, oh, my God, he said, this is an incredible sign. It was a whale that brought the Waitaha, guided the Waitaha people to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, wow. And so 
that just um, capped that nicely, didn't it? Yeah. But then about two or three months later, Raywin and I and three other people were back up that way to carry on our research in the foothills behind the sand dunes to see if we could actually find more evidence of the ancient Waitaha village. Not a very easy thing to do because of wind blowing sand over a long period of time right. that covered a lot of things up. Right. But we're working our way through coastal Manuka, which is very stunted, not very tall, uh, and not very thick. You can stand in coastal uh, Manuka and sandals and see for ages through it. Moss on the growing on the ground and a few little trees, but mostly Manuka. And so we've been looking around and we'd found a, um, uh, a little pond, which had obviously been dammed up by humans at some time or another because there was a, a spring fed running, a stream running into it, a little stream tripping into it. Mm-hmm. We thought that's interesting. So we'll carry on down this area here and see if we can find uh, any other traces of a village site. So we walked on nice and flat and we thought, um, right, well, time we stopped just for a um, cup of tea or a drink of water and uh, <clears throat> something to nibble on. We parked miles away and we were miles from anywhere at the moment. We were not far from the beach, but we're right up very, very steep. We'd come in the long way round. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> we found another little pond and we, we thought, oh, we'll sit beside this because the same stream uh, spring was trickling into this pond, then down a little outlet into the other one we found further down. We thought, wow, we're on the trail of something. We'll sit down here. The little slope came down. We nestled ourselves in there, <clears throat> eating our um, bars, our raisin bars, or whatever you call them, nut bars. And then suddenly we heard voices. And it was hard to make out two or three voices chattering away. We looked at each other, looked at, perhaps there's someone else here. We're in the middle of nowhere. We hadn't seen any other vehicles, no other footprints are coming up the sand dunes. And we would have heard vehicles arriving if they had. We thought, oh, this is weird. And we sort of looking. Um, and we were sitting behind a little ridge by this pond. And the voices were sort of coming from around the other side of the ridge, right. from the area we'd just come from, where we'd walk through. So they were getting closer and closer. And we thought, oh, we'll stand up and say good day and um, see who it is. So we, uh, two or three of us stood up to walk around the edge of the uh, little hill there and look. And then the voices, still chattering, went right in front of where we were looking, no sign of anybody, right in front of us, right and carried on, stage left and disappeared <laughs> amongst the trees. And we looked at each other and being of a very open mind, of sound mind and body, but a very open mind, we thought, wow, now this is for a reason. We'll talk about this later, but let's go in the direction that those voices went because this may lead us to something. And we did follow in that direction. And we did find something which um, was very interesting. So there we have it. How about that? That's really interesting. So they were pretty much guiding you to what you needed to find. I think so. I think so. Whether it was an inadvertent thing on their behalf or or not, I I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, So then I gathered stories from around New Zealand and we made a documentary and I've published a few more stories. But when the Fair Investigation Society held their worldwide census over a number of years, 
and there were 700 responses around the world. I was quite surprised when I got a copy of the census that there were about 20 responses from New Zealand. People had picked up on this and written. So I've got time to go through a few of these. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Okay, good. One response here, which um, uh, Auckland, New Zealand, um, a lady, and this happened in the 1950s. And she said, I was in my dark bedroom and watched a little silhouette figure, maybe six inches high, move across the hall floor, lit from the living room. When I told my mother next day that I'd seen a fairy, I think she believed I'd really seen something, but was worried it might have been a mouse, just a silhouette. Rather, a bed figure with a pointed cap on its head seemed to bob across the floor rather than to walk in steps. I've always been sure it was an experience of a fairy, which is interesting. So this is the type of thing which was brought out on the census. 1990s, a lady in Auckland. And when I was a child, I got a strong sense that there were creatures living in our garden other than the usual birds and insects. And when I played outside during twilight or as it was getting dark, I would frequently see movements in the grass or amongst the plants. A few times I saw very tiny beings in the garden carrying small, very bright lamps. And they were very wispy and long-haired, quite ghostly, almost transparent in form. I was a very easy, scared child, but I never felt scared of them, although I felt nervous about getting too close in case they wanted me to go with them. I frequently looked for them during the day, but I never, never saw them. They're almost ghostly, quite wispy, not quite opaque, very pale, almost like very unkempt children, Mm. very long hair, clothing was light, shimmery, but almost ripped and torn in layers, bare feet, and a light, upbeat, almost medieval-sounding music, like a flute. So that was another, and then another lady here in the 1990s. I saw it out the corner of my eye as I walked through the school on my way home at 6.15 a.m. in the morning. Uh, she had been working somewhere and she was taking a shortcut through the school grounds to go home. Mm. It was darkest, but there was a light from a security light in the school and from the street light, so I could see quite well. The ferry was human shaped but only about 12 inches high, and it was transparent like a jellyfish. It was hovering in a flax bush. Mm. And in the time it took for me to turn my head and look directly at it, it was gone, human-shaped, but 12 inches high, transparent like a jellyfish. It looked like a fairy without the wings. So on we go. Wow. Interesting, the sizes, though. And it's my understanding that the fairy can appear that they can shapeshift their size. I, you're right. But also, I think what we're looking at is various types of fairies, various groupings of fairies. Right. A little book I bought back from England many years ago, and it uh, gives me a description of 123 different types of fairies. Oh, wow. And they vary from the little tiny ones that we know of, like the flower fairies, to ones which are 12 inches high, one which uh, <clears throat> um, three to four foot high, others which are almost like giants. Right. So 
there is quite a range of them, actually, which is quite interesting. It is interesting, yeah. And it makes yep. sense because look at the variation in the human race. That's right. Look at the um, variance in, in the human race as well. Yeah. And another lady here in the um, early 2000s, she was on a 10-day shamanic retreat, and I saw the fairies on the last day. They looked to me about the same size as the seven dwarfs. They giggled when they saw me and ran along in front of me, talking excitedly and glancing back to look at me. They had the energy of excited children that had been noticed and was thrilled to be acknowledged. Lots of giggling and what I remember. I was with a group of 10 women walking through a beach forest in the South Island. No one else saw them. They had faces which reminded me of dwarves, giggling and talking and gabbling. Wow. So... Gisborne, a man, 2010. The birds were flying out of a nearby tree down into my vineyard and eating some of my sweet grapes. It was in the early morning. I was quite annoyed as I worked hard for them. And I shouted and clapped my hands to scare the birds away. Next minute, the sparkle of glistening light with blue edges flew from the tree directly at me, then turned and flew over the vineyard, zigzagging and doing twirls. The air went quiet and very still, and the birds flew off and didn't cause much annoyance. We don't use herbicides, insecticides, or systemic fungicides, and we don't kill the things, nor do we try to disturb nature. We study elemental beings or nature spirits. So here were people working close to the land. Yeah. And the fact he wished to scare the birds away, it seems that he had a little assistance. Sounds like it. There's no end of stories here. Just speaking about the different sizes, the lady who contacted me, I can't remember when her experience was. I think it was around 2010, somewhere around there. Um, She was only a younger woman. Her and her partner were touring New Zealand and they had a van or they were camping. I can't remember exactly how they were doing it, but they stopped at Taupo and they camped in a place where you're not allowed to camp, but they camped there overnight and as soon as the, it got light, they decided they'd better pack up so nobody could see uh, that they'd been camping there. And they, yeah. while they were there, they decided to go for a walk in the bush. And so they went for a, a walk and they were enjoying this like really early morning. It was just barely light because they had to get up before any dock staff or whomever turned up. Yeah. And while they were walking, she could hear a flute being played. And she followed the sound of the flute and she saw this being standing there playing this flute. And he was human size. He had fair skin with a blue tinge and red hair. And he just stood there and smiled at her, just playing the flute. Nothing else happened. She didn't feel scared. And then suddenly she was aware she could hear her partner calling for her. And when she looked again, the guy had gone. And so she followed the sound. She didn't realize she'd gone so far off the path. And she followed the sound of her partner's voice. And he was frantic. He said, where have you been? I've been looking for you for X amount of time. And she didn't realize that she had lost this period of time while she was standing there listening to this patipari here playing the flute. Yeah. So you see... That I love hearing stories like that too, because this um, just goes to show what, what is really going on around us. And um, also, there must be a number of people out there who've 
who've had experiences not dissimilar. And we hear of people walking even um, in the daylight, but in a heavy, heavy forest mm. and hearing the chattering of uh, what they think are children laughing and playing uh, in the bush alongside the track they're walking, but there's no children there when they dive in to have a look and see who's there. So, and I think if you're in the right place at the right time and also you can be perceived as being someone who could accept this right. without being apprehensive or scared and, and, and sort of um, because I have a feeling, and this has been discussed with many Māori people over the years, that it's almost as if the dwellers of these other realms think it's imperative that we have more contact today because they exist in the same biosphere as we do on the planet. They just right. live on the planet as we do. They see the same as we do. Mm -hmm. They breathe the same air. They drink the same water. They see the same forest. But they just at a different vibratory rate. So they live in their own realm. Great. This is the way I see it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that what uh, humans um, have done to the planet with um, uh, deforestation and um, et cetera, et cetera, is they feeling this. So it just may be the time now that um, we... Uh, we do make better contact. And I think that there was a story that I heard a while ago that, and I think I referred to this when I started my little talk here, is that the fairies retreated uh, during the industrial age, during right. the age of steam and steel. They don't like cold iron. Mm. They moved away. And we've gone through the industrial age now. We've gone through the age of... Um, we're actually now in, in a digital age. We're in an age of new technology. We're in an age of different ways of communicating. And I think there probably a lot of people now with, with what's available in this technological age, first of all, you know, I have the devices that I can record the sound of pl plant singing. Right. And then, of course, a lot of people are now capturing images on their digital cameras. Mm -hmm. So in this age of technology, this age of knowledge, we're in an age of knowledge now, The um, we can be more open to what is going on. I'd just like to finish off here with um, a couple of things that I made notes of. And this is a, um, a quote from J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan, of course. And he's saying, when the first baby laughed for the first time, the laugh broke into a thousand pieces and they all went skipping about. And that was the beginning of fairies. <laughs> I love really that. Sweet. It's really sweet. And then just one more from William Butler Yeats. He wrote a lot about fairies. Fairies, come take me out of this dull world, for I ride with you upon the wind run on the top of the dishevelled tide and dance upon the mountains like a flame. Lovely. It's been just delightful listening to you again, as always, Gary. You're just so interesting. And I can see how much effort you put into collecting information to help educate people and entertain them as well, because it is interesting 
listening to this. It's, it's entertaining and it's educational and I really enjoy it. And I know my listeners enjoy listening to you talk as well. As always, it's an absolute pleasure talking with you. Now the pleasure was all mine. I want to thank Gary for his time, expertise, and all the research he's done into this topic. When we spoke, he was actually in the process of writing an article for some publication on this very subject, and so he had all his research and findings around him. If you want to know more about Gary, you can check out his website, www.thesecretland.co.nz. You can access all of his books, music of plant records, and his documentary, which is well worth watching on the Patiparehe from his website. Gary also has a Facebook page, gary.cook.com. Dot 58 if you want to follow him there. He also has a YouTube channel with all sorts of interesting little videos on, many to do with his work on plants and the music that can be recorded from them. You can look these links up yourself or simply go to this episode's page on our podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com and click on the links from that page or the featured guest page also has his links. If you want to know more about his music of the plants, go back to season one and listen to the two episodes I did with him on that very subject entitled Music of the Plants. Today's bumper music was an early 19th century puturino at New Zealand's Te Papa Museum played by Dr Richard Nunns. I felt it was appropriate to this week's episode, being that puturinos are the favoured instrument of the Patipaarehe. Do you enjoy walking the Shadowlands? Then, so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora, and Amazon as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, open Walking the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you enjoy our podcast, then please consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members-only page on the podcast website that has bits that end up on the digital cutting board and little extras like the disembodied voices that I heard during my conversation with Patty last episode. And you can download full written transcripts of each episode and you get my absolute gratitude and appreciation. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to patreon.com forward slash mcc15 and sign up now. Check out our Facebook page under Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10, TikTok under Walking underscore the underscore Shadowlands. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes. 
Also, you can listen to our episodes from YouTube. Just look for Walking the Shadowlands on YouTube. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode. Kakite ano oya koi. I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. 